As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live small group cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. Michael, do you remember a couple weeks back when we had planned to do an episode about, I don't even know what it was, but you made this like little off the cuff comment to me. Do you remember? Oh yeah. You mean about how the episode was going to be our 400th? Yeah. That small little detail. (laughs) Well, in fairness, (laughs) I I just noticed it right before we connected. Well, 400 episodes is a pretty amazing feat. I mean, in my opinion, anyway, I think, um, I once heard a stat that was like, what? 90% of podcasts never even make it past like episode 10 or something like that. Yeah. Something like that. (laughs) And yeah, you know what? When I stopped to think about it for a minute, it's, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, it definitely is. Now I haven't been a part of rocket ship the entire time, maybe like a couple hundred of those episodes, but I I couldn't let the 400th episode just be some random episode and you just make a small (laughs) comment and we had to take some time to sort of celebrate it a little bit. 
No, I, I, I love that. Um, so to do that, let's let's look back at the kind of the entire history of Rocket Ship and let's each pick some of our favorite episodes and you know, we'll go all the way back to the beginning if we have to on this. Yeah, all the way back to how far should we go? Episode uh, I don't know, like 2014 is a long time ago, but we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> all right. All right. That sounds good. We should probably do the whole intro thing first. All right. Let's run it. Welcome to Rocketship.fm. Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective. We are your hosts, Michael Saka. And I'm Mike Belsito. So we often talk about business on the show. Um, but one of my favorite episodes we did uh, was actually on relationships because it can be really hard to find that work-life balance and even more so when you're the leader inside of a company or the founder of a company. Ah, yeah. This was part of season six, I think, when we followed Krish, Gunto, and Lee for a couple months as they built various products. Yeah, that's it. This this was right in the middle of that series. And there was the story that Krish told me about his seven-year-old son. I remember this one. And we should probably preface it with the fact that Krish, who lives in Chennai, India, travels a lot. Yeah, it's something that he loves to do. And now something that's it's essential for the success of Charge because they, they've raised a lot of their capital from the United States. But his son, he really didn't understand why he always had to be traveling. Chris loves to travel, and he's on the road for about a month every quarter. He's speaking at conferences, traveling to visit clients, and working to set up offices in the U.S. and Europe. This also means long stretches of time away from his family. At one point, he tells me this story about his sons asking him why he needs to travel. Why can't he just fly his customers on one big plane to Chennai? So uh, today morning, I was telling my uh, elder one, elder son, that uh, um, I'm actually going to New York uh, and San Francisco. And then his first question was, why are you going all the time? Why are you just going to U.S. all the time? <laughs> and then I said, okay. that is where most of our customers are. Then he said, then why don't you ask them to come here? Um, then I said, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> Uh, because there are uh, 10, 20 of them I'll meet in a single trip. So it is more efficient that I go and meet them. Uh, then he was like, but then put them all on the same plane. Um, <laughs> 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 it was a weird question, right? <laughs> and, but you know, he, I kind of like his son's point. Yeah, yeah. And so, and for a while, uh, his wife was at home with the kids, but recently she went back to work, which means more balancing of time and responsibilities. Uh, it's all right. That is a great episode. I'm glad you chose that specific clip. I think people would love to go back and maybe play that whole season back, but I've got one. It's worth it. it it's definitely worth it. Um, I've got one for you, though, Michael. Okay, let's hear it. All right. Well, you said relationships, and it sort of reminded me of love. Have we ever done any episodes on love? Well, sort of. I mean, we did do an episode on products that people loved. Oh, yeah, we did. Um, and if I remember correctly, you actually sort of Twitter stalked some of these people and got them to speak <laughs> up about why they confess their product love on Twitter, right? It, that's exactly right. And here is a clip from that very episode. Remind me, how'd you find the people you interviewed? Were these your friends or? Actually, all of the people I had conversations with for this episode were complete strangers. I actually got a hold of them by kind of stalking them a little bit. I mean, I really, I Twitter stalked them. 
So you actually Twitter stalked people to get these interviews? I totally did. I went onto Twitter and searched for terms that people might use when they're talking about products that they love because I actually didn't want to hear from my friends. A lot of my friends, and they're similar to me, they probably like the same sort of products that I do. So I wanted to hear from people that actually had different backgrounds, maybe loved different products. And so how easy was it to find these people then? Were they willing to open up? So- Yes and no. I mean, people were willing to open up. Yes, but it wasn't as easy as I thought it might be to find them. Um, I, you know, in using those search terms on Twitter, what I learned is that a lot of the times that people are talking about products that they love, they're sort of casually dropping some sort of affiliate link in Twitter too. Oh, so they may not really love the product. They may just be trying to make a couple bucks. Yeah, I mean, you see all sorts of like health and beauty products and there are these affiliate URLs and yeah, you know they're probably getting paid to say what they're saying. Um, And that happens a lot of the time. But there definitely were others that I found where it was different. I could tell that they didn't have any sort of incentive to profess their love of the product to the world. They were just doing it just because. And honestly, the conversations I had, some of them were a ton of fun. I mean, I got to chat with people from places like Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which isn't too far for where I live in Cleveland, but all the way to Australia. In fact, actually, it was Alice, a journalist in Australia, where this episode started for me. And Alice loved a product that you mentioned and I also love, which is Slack. But before she would talk to me about Slack, there was something that I had to do for her first. Can you do me a super quick favor? Yeah. Can you say hello to my three-year-old? Of course I can. You want to say hi? Hello. Hi. How are you? Good. Yeah. Are you having a good day today? Yeah. You sure? What are we watching? Princess Elsa. (laughs) Okay. Well, that's actually pretty cute. I mean, how could I not say hi to her daughter, right? Anyway, soon after Alice's daughter left, we got to talking about Slack and how I found her on Twitter responding to somebody talking about something totally different, but how she sort of inserted herself into the conversation about how much she loves Slack. Yeah, Lane Sainty is a journalist at BuzzFeed Australia, and um, I follow her. Um, I work as a journalist, and um, she posted a picture of a conversation between her and one of her colleagues and I recognize it as the Slack interface. And in my current job, we don't have Slack. Um, but in my old job, we did. And I, so I just tweeted to her. I'm like, all I can say about this tweet is I really, really miss Slack. I love Slack and I don't get to use it anymore. And that makes me pretty sad sometimes. She goes on to talk about her love for Slack more in that episode. But we should probably pause here, take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. When Rain Wilson realized he had a special gift for talking people to sleep, he had two choices. Construct a massive speaker that would blast his voice to every person in the country or invent a talking pillow. AT&T Business eventually talked him into the pillow thing. And backed by a reliable network, the only network with built-in security controls, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your ideas to the moon and beyond at business.att. That's business.att.com. Okay, now that we're back, I want to bring up another one of my favorite episodes, which was, man, now from almost three years ago, way back in 2016. 
It, it doesn't feel that long ago, though, really. I know, man. Time flies. But so way back in 2016, we did a story about the history of the baseball cap. Ah, uh, yeah. I remember that for sure. Yeah, it was interesting to kind of follow the history of the baseball cap from like the 1800s, where it was just a functional product for baseball players to you know, shield themselves from the sun. And it, it became kind of a social fashion piece and, and now just a giant industry. Let's play the part towards the beginning of the episode um, where we're talking about Earhart Koch, who is kind of the, the founder of the modern baseball cap. And he realized that the hat industry that he was in, it was changing. It was actually in decline. Hats were, were getting simpler, less expensive. Um, but this baseball cap was a growing market that no one had tapped into yet. He started his company in 1920, and by 1932, he saw a decline. The fashion world was changing, and people were no longer wearing these very elegant hats. But Mr. Koch was a hat maker. And so what does a good entrepreneur do? They look for opportunity where others maybe aren't. And there was a hat market that was growing, and he had a unique advantage to enter it. Play ball. First inning. Two on base. Ruth faces Hubble. Ball one. Strike, says the umpire. What? Baseball, the sport, was growing in popularity, and teams were making more money and thus were spending more money on their uniforms. One of the things that was obviously a staple of the uniform was the hat. And so in the 1930s, he started making both the home and away caps for the Cleveland Indians. This was most likely one of the earliest licensing deals that we see for a branded cap. The 1940s All right, I like that one a lot. And I'm actually going to keep things here in the same era because uh, I think it was a little bit later. I think it was more like 2017, but we did a whole series of podcast episodes actually completely outside of the rocket ship banner. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. You must be talking about this new economy. That's exactly right. Yeah, we sort of took a different approach with some episodes and released them under the This New Economy banner. And well, since then, we've decided to bring it all back to rocket ship. But that's sort mm. of besides the point. Yeah. Yeah. No, no go on. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of my favorite episodes that we've ever done was during that This New Economy era. And it was one that centered on a company based in my hometown of Cleveland, Ohio, the home of digital commerce. Oh, yeah. I know which one you're talking about. This is this is probably one of the, my favorite things that, that we've ever done as well. It, yes. I am talking about the untold story of the very first e-commerce store to sell books or really anything, which is not Amazon.com. It is the untold story of books.com. The year was 1992. The location, Cleveland, Ohio the birthplace of online commerce. That's right, Cleveland, Ohio, not Silicon Valley, not San Francisco, not even Seattle, Washington. This is the story of books.com, the internet's very first e-commerce store, and its founder, Charlie Stack, a lawyer turned self-taught software developer, and what happened when Charlie and books.com created internet history and later faced a new entrant in Jeff Bezos and Amazon.com. Today, Charlie's known as one of the most active and outspoken members of Cleveland's startup community as an angel investor, running a large co-working space, and spearheading the city's only technology accelerator. But the one thing that Charlie rarely talks about is his role in internet history. After all, according to Charlie, you can only change the future, not the past. So why talk about the past? 
So that role that Charlie and Books.com played in the beginning of e-commerce often goes virtually ignored until today. understand the story of books.com you have to understand who charlie stack is i've only had the chance to know the charlie of today somebody who comes across as somewhat introverted yet is very connected somebody who stoically stares into you as you talk leaving you wondering how he's going to react to whatever it is that you're saying yet his responses are often quite thoughtful and helpful often he's a little bit disheveled and he's usually dressed in black Charlie almost comes across as a cross between a throwback of Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. But unlike today's crop of internet entrepreneurs, Charlie didn't study computer science or learn under established tech entrepreneurs. Back in the 1980s, internet startups didn't even exist, so how could he? Instead, Charlie started on a different path, as a lawyer. And it was then when Charlie first was really exposed to business technology. When I was in law school, I was a law clerk at a personal injury firm, and they brought in this $35,000 word processor that nobody knew how to use. Whenever they pushed a button and the printer ran, the whole room shook. Uh, and all the paralegals and secretaries were afraid of it. But I thought it kind of looked cool. So I went in there and figured out that not only was it a giant word processor, but it had a mail merge function which at the time was revolutionary. And my job as a law clerk was to put together discovery documentation, which is hundreds and hundreds of pages with a few variables. Ah, mail merge. And you know, if you're, a, if you're a younger person, the concept of not having a word processor is totally foreign, but there used to be pools of secretaries who would sit around on typewriters, where if you made a single mistake, you had to go back and literally paint it out and type over it. So a word processor was revolutionary, but I figured out how to do the mail merge part. So I would type in all the details of a case into this database, which I didn't know even to call it that, into a database and then have it merge with a form and print out these hundreds and hundreds of pages. The problem was the printer was only 50 pages capacity, and it was what was called a decent wheel, which is a lot like a machine gun. So it was incredibly loud, its own little booth, its own little room, but I just would print out 300 pages on command very, very slowly. So I would get it all set up, press print, and then go ask one of the nice secretaries to change the paper every couple of minutes when it ran out of the 50 pages, and I would go to the baseball game. <laughs> and after about three weeks of that, the senior partner came to me and said, how are we going to get our other uh, law clerks as productive as you are. Even as and a there's a whole lot more to that story. In fact, there's two full episodes to capture it all. So I definitely recommend you go back and check out the untold story of books.com if you haven't heard it already. Now it's on the rocket ship feed, so you can find it there. Yeah, and we'll link all of these in the show notes. So we'll make it really easy. So, all right, I'll go next. The next one I picked was from our mental model series. Oh, there were definitely some good things in there. Yeah. So um, one of the stories that really struck out to me was the story about the Semmelweis reflex, which helps explain why ideas aren't often accepted or adopted inside of large organizations. Yeah. And it also explains how disruption inside of industries actually happens, right? Yeah, exactly. So, so here's actually you telling us the story about the history of the Semmelweis reflex. 
There's another model that lots of us run into at companies, especially larger companies, with built-in institutional knowledge. Yeah, let me – that's uh, the Sem, Semmel – Semmelweis reflex. Uh, Ignaz Semmelweis was a 19th century Hungarian doctor who worked at a teaching hospital where doctors routinely handled cadavers and also delivered babies without washing their hands in between. That's gross. Yeah. Well, he thought so too. The the death rate of mothers who gave birth in this part of the hospital was like 10%. Wow. That's really high. Yeah. It's very, very high. And there was actually another wing of the same hospital where midwives would deliver babies and exclusively deliver babies. And the death rate was only 4%. Oh, so that's a big difference between doctors and midwives. Yeah, and he obsessed over this, finally figuring out that the difference was the handling of the cadavers without washing hands, and finally instituted a rule where doctors had to wash their hands. Ah, and the death rate dropped. Pretty much immediately. So everyone praised him. He went on to become a national hero. Uh, no, actually, his theories were completely rejected at the time, and <laughs> doctors were offended that he would insinuate that anything they were doing would actually cause additional deaths, and they chose to ignore that fact that death rates were down when they actually washed their hands. Uh, so that brings us to confirmation bias. I'm not there yet, but yes. Okay. <laughs> so Semmelweis basically went crazy and was admitted to an asylum and ended up dying at the age of 47. It actually took another 20 years for the medical industry to accept his findings as truth. And only after Louis Pasteur's work on germ theory further proved Semmelweis's findings. So he was awarded something, right? Well, a mental model, which is now known as the Semmelweis reflex, which helps to explain why ideas are rejected simply because they fall outside the conventional thinking of that time. Now, Semmelweis was able to see past the current accepted conventional thinking of that time, and he independently concluded that there was a better way to do things. But he wasn't able to get over the fact that no one else wanted to see things from his perspective. I was pretty darn good in that episode, wasn't I? I'm so humble, too. (laughs) So, (laughs) I think this is a perfect time uh, to take a quick break to hear more from our sponsors. All right, my next pick is a favorite because, well, I'll just be honest. It's one that actually helped my business considerably. Oh, yeah? Yeah, and it involved our friend Bob Mesta, the co-architect of the Jobs to be Done framework. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've done a few episodes with Bob over the years, but you actually got to do more than just interview him. Yeah, Bob was actually the one doing the interviewing, but he wasn't interviewing (laughs) me. He was interviewing our customers. Um, So Bob agreed to help my partner Paul and I conduct Jobs to be Done interviews with the attendees of our conference, uh, which is Industry the Product Conference. And we recorded those interviews and release them here on rocket ship for everybody to hear and and take in um and i actually took an excerpt of the prep call that paul and i did with bob and here it is so how did you get bob mesta who helped create jobs to be done in the first place to become your jobs to be done mentor well okay you know bob spoke at the conference this past fall Um, in fact his talk and workshop was one of the highest rated talks that we've ever had at any industry conference we've ever put on. And he's actually going to be joining us in Dublin, Ireland this April as we bring industry to Europe. But when we were at industry, I was sharing with him how 
we like to treat the conference as a product. And so attendee interviews, those are super important to us. And they've definitely helped shape the conference and just how it's evolved over the past few years. But a lot of times, admittedly, you know, I'll conduct these interviews. And at the end, I'll think to myself, like, am I doing this right? Yeah. Qualitative feedback can always be tricky. It's not as cut and dry as quantitative feedback, although it can definitely be eye-opening. So what was Bob's take? Well, he understood where we were coming from, but then he said something. He was like, well, hey, look, I'd be up for doing some interviews with you if you ever thought it could be helpful. And you took him up on that. Yeah, I definitely did. I mean, look, I don't know if he just sort of offered that up in passing, but I was definitely not going to miss out on that opportunity. And actually, it was just a couple of weeks ago where my partner, Paul, and I had a call with Bob to talk about how to approach jobs to be done interviews in general. And here's part of the conversation that Paul and I had with Bob. We want to make sure we cover today. What, what, what can we help the most with? We like doing attendee interviews, right? And we're trying to use those attendee interviews to keep making the conference better. It's what went into making changes for Industry 2018. But I'll totally admit, I feel like we'll do these interviews and I'm like, I have no idea if I'm doing this right. There's definitely a big part of me that's wondering, am I not writing down yeah, the things I should something. be writing down? You know, like, am I not taking away yep. the things I yep. should be taking away? So that's a big thing for me. Paul, I know yeah. you're... Yeah, I'm also interested in um, not just the, the information we can get in regards to positioning, but how can our conference change in regards to what we what we learn from these jobs to be done thing? Is there yep. Yep. is there something remarkably different we could be doing with our conference? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let, let's start with the with the interview part, right? I think the thing is, is on the interview, it's it's in the hardest part for you because it's it's almost like your product, your service that you're doing is that that you're so interested in kind of what they say about it and you literally have to just let it go like especially if you're recording the calls you can come back to that stuff ultimately what you're trying to do is make sure you can understand like it from their perspective what they saw what they heard what they felt and why did they come it's a level below of like, well, my friend was going and, you know, I thought it was good, but, you know, and I had been to a conference in a long time, right? You got to dig way, way past that. So they're going to give you these surface answers and you got to think of yourself as a detective to be really like, okay, like, so wait, who's the friend and why do you follow what the friend says? And then you got to dig in to say, is it like, are you just always following what friends say? And I'm looking to a certain set of people for ideas. And so it's like when somebody important to me tells me something about what I do, I'm going to go. And so it's like, that would mean it's like a networking based thing where you've got to find the influencers and they'll bring a whole bunch of people. So, so this is this has got to be dug way beyond their first answer, and and what I would say is all the real magic happens around between 25 and and 40 minutes. Like it's it's like they actually got pre-programmed answers for almost everything you're asking until you get to that level where they kind of run out of answers, and then they start to dig deeper for what's. There. And so, aside from the rest of that prep call, the actual interviews that Bob did on our behalf with our attendees, they're also available on Rocket Ship. So, if you ever wanted to hear the father of jobs to be done actually <laughs> conduct a full jobs to be done interview, definitely go back and check that out. Yeah, no, that was a, an incredible uh, resource there. Uh, so, all right. So, for my last pick and the last pick of this special episode 400. Let's go all the way back to episode one. 
I'm not even going to ask the year. Yeah, it was 2014. I was just a baby. Oh, we both were kind of babies, weren't we? But I wasn't with you for that. I, but I actually remember the episode because, I, I mean, I was really just a fan at that point. And I remember you interviewing. I'll let you reveal it. Yeah, it was Ryan Hoover of Product Hunt. And, and I remember sitting all around the table uh, with uh, Joel and Matt in downtown San Diego. And we really had no idea what we were doing. We had one <laughs> mic set up. Um, and you, you can just hear it in the audio quality. But it was actually a really good interview. But first, I want you to check out our intro music at the time. Welcome to the Rocket Ship Podcast. I'm Michael Saka. I'm Joelle Steiniger. And I'm Matt Goldman. And we're having 20-minute talks with entrepreneurs teaching you how to launch your product into revenue. Check out our so this episode was all about how Ryan really started Product Hunt. He had just started it a couple months before this, so this is super early in his journey. And we actually got to capture kind of their bootstrap mentality in the early days of Product Hunt um, and how he thought about bringing a brand new product like this to market and really the work that he had done for the last year that made it such a success. Well, and I think that it's so fitting that you chose that one because, yeah, it was the first episode, but it was so early on in Product Hunt's life. And think about it now. Like we're 400 episodes later, but the life of Product Hunt, like companies do whole product launches around Product Hunt now. Fully acquired, um, incredible. And and so, yeah, so let's play the clip of Ryan talking about how he started Product Hunt. So Product Hunt is uh, something that we launched, me and Nathan Bashaw launched roughly two months ago or so. And it ultimately started from just my interest in product. I've been working in product and technology now for four or five years, and I just love talking about products and geeking out about products with other smart people. Uh, that's often what happens when I meet other entrepreneurs. We talk about what apps are you playing with, what products are you discovering, what's in your home screen. And so I had this desire to, okay, how do you take that offline kind of a conversation and engagement? How do you bring it online? And so I initially created essentially an email list with maybe 20 or 30 uh, founders and investors that I knew and just told them, Hey, he, here's this email list, contribute cool products you find. And each day the digest is emailed to the, to the group. And I I enjoyed it. I liked finding these products. And then more and more people started subscribing. A few different people came up to me and said, Hey, that product hunt thing is really cool. Um, you know, I, I love it. And I look forward to those daily emails. So uh, short story is we took that and, and built an actual product out of that. Effectively, it's kind of like a Hacker News style uh, model and where contributors post products, they enter the link of the product, the name of the product, short tagline, and then the community upvotes what they think is the coolest. And within each post, you can also comment. So 400 episodes. That's pretty crazy, Michael. It really is. So what do you say? 400 more? I don't know. Can we even do that? I mean, we've gotten this far. Why not, right? <laughs> yeah, we'll just have to see. I'm up for it. So Rocketship listeners, thank you for being here along with us for this journey the entire time. And actually, next week, we are launching a season eight of Rocketship, all about product failure, which is... I, one of my favorite topics that we've ever covered. Yeah, it's something that doesn't get talked about as often as it probably should. But in this whole season, we'll be hearing from 
founders, product people. Um, we'll be hearing from people on the other side of it, like people that have dealt with product people as they're going through product failure. I've had my own share of failures and I'm gonna talk about it in this season too. So I can't wait to open it up and really let everybody take stuff in here. All right. Thank you so much for listening to Rocketship.fm. It's your support that keeps the show going. Rocketship.fm is now part of the Podglomerate Network. If you want to learn more about the other shows on the Podglomerate Network, go to thepodglomerate.com. Rocketship.fm is produced in partnership with Product Collective, a community for product people. If you go to productcollective.com, you could check out live video interviews, sign up for our newsletter, be a part of our Slack group with over 6,000 product people. Just check it out at productcollective.com.